And it's wonderful to see all of you this morning. If it's your first time, welcome to Image Church. My name is Pastor Mike, and we are currently going through the book of Exodus. And if you have your Bibles, this would be a great time to go ahead and open up to Exodus 8. If you're using a phone as your Bible, please go ahead and put it on Do Not Disturb. At this time, that would be most welcome. So we're calling this series Following Jesus leading like Moses. Again, we believe that all of the Bible is inspired. We believe the Old Testament, not just the New Testament, is inspired and that as the New Testament writers say, these things were written for our instruction. And so we are to learn from these great stories of the Old Testament and see what they have to say to followers of Jesus. So we're going through Exodus and today we'll be in Exodus chapter 8. I'm going to go ahead and just begin in prayer this morning, and we'll read through the text as we go through the sermon itself. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we come before you this morning, and we thank you so much that you are present. We thank you that when the word is rightly taught, Christ is spiritually present. So, Lord, I just pray that you would bless this time of teaching. I pray that you would bless the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart. I pray that you would grant by your grace the ability to hear these words, not as the words of a man, but as they are in reality, the very word of God. And I pray that you would reveal those things about us, Lord, that you would want to change those things about us that are not right, things that motivate us and compel our actions all week long that you are desiring to change. I pray that you would teach us openness, vulnerability, and humility. I pray that if there's things we cherish but you are calling us to let go of them, that you would enable us to let go of them that we might get more of you. Lord, if we are feeling discouraged this morning, if we are under tremendous pressure to change things in our lives that you don't want us to change, perhaps there's people in our lives or situations that are pressuring us to abandon our faith, to doubt the integrity of your word, that are call uponing and tempting us to fail in our Christian character. We pray that you would strengthen and affirm us this morning in those things. We pray in all things that Jesus would be glorified. For it is in his name we live and move and have our being. We pray for a blessing now over this time of teaching. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Exodus chapter 8. Chapter 8 records three of the famous ten plagues. In particular, the second plague, the third plague, and the fourth plague. Normally, I read the whole chapter uh, to start, and then we go into the various points. Uh, We're going to try it a little different. To save some time, we'll go through each of the plagues one at a time, and I'll share our points this morning. So let's go ahead and look at the second plague, which is the plague of frogs, and that's going to be verses 1 through 15. And the Lord spoke to Moses... Go to Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go, that they may serve me. 
But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will smite all your territory with frogs. So the river shall bring forth frogs abundantly, which shall go up and come into your house and into your bedroom and on your bed and into the houses of your servants and on your people and into your ovens and into your kneading bowls. And the frogs shall come upon you and on your people and on all your servants. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your hand with your rod over the streams, over the rivers and over the ponds and cause frogs to come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came and covered up the land of Egypt. And the magicians did so with their enchantments, and brought up frogs on the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron and said, Entreat the Lord that he may take away the frogs from me and from my people, and I will let the people go that they may sacrifice to the Lord. And Moses said to Pharaoh, Accept the honor of saying when I shall intercede for you, for your servants and for your people, to destroy the frogs from you and your houses that they may remain in the river only. So he said, tomorrow. And he said, let it be according to your word, that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. And the frogs shall depart from you, from your houses, from your servants, and from your people. They shall remain in the river only. Then Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh. And Moses cried out to the Lord concerning the frogs which he had brought against Pharaoh. So the Lord did according to the word of Moses, and the frogs died out of the houses, out of the courtyards, and out of the fields. They gathered them together in heaps, and the land stank. But when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart and did not heed them as the Lord had said. Uh, So there's a little bit of humor probably happening here in the second plague, the plague of frogs. Um, First of all, the Egyptians were polytheists. Some people debate the definition of polytheism, and they want to say that the Egyptians were pantheists, but I, I think they fit the definition of classic polytheists. They believed in many gods, and they believed that these created things in the world that you see had gods behind them. So we talked last week about the Nile. The Nile was not just a river that provided for you to eat. They worshipped it as a god. They functionally worshipped it and served it as a god. And there wasn't just one god related to the Nile. There were multiple gods. Now, interestingly, they worshipped, again, various gods, but the goddesses of fertility. And one of the symbols of fertility was a frog. So you can actually see in some Egyptian hieroglyphics, there's a picture of a woman and she has a frog's head. Um, so not the most attractive woman, but she has a frog head and it's a symbol of fertility. So there's quite some irony here. The frogs became apparently so fertile that they completely overran the land of Egypt. One of the other things that's happening here is, of course, the Pharaoh's magicians are able to duplicate this particular, um, this particular plague. But think about how helpful that was if you're Pharaoh. The magician's like, okay, okay, watch this, Pharaoh. We just made the problem worse. It's like that's what they're able to do. They were able to duplicate. They weren't able to get the frogs to go away. They could simply make the problem a little bit worse. So that's kind of ironic. Like that's what they're doing. They're showing Pharaoh, hey, we got power. We can make the problem worse. So I think there's a little bit of humor going on here. Another thing that's happening here is this is the first time Pharaoh has pleaded for God to remove the plague. If you remember last week in the plague of the Nile, Pharaoh didn't do that. 
Why do you think that was? Why, why did he not plead with God last time about the Nile, but he is pleading here with the frogs? We all know that money, power, and status in this world matters. And oftentimes, if you have those things, it's not that you have a perfect life. In some ways, uh, as the old rap song goes, mo money, mo problems. But um, the truth is that money can buy you out of certain things. You cannot have to face things that other people without that money, power, and status have to face. That's probably is what is happening here. Last week when the Nile was cursed, that meant nobody could go get water. They had to go start digging. They had to go away from the Nile and start digging in the ground in order to get water. So that made more work for them. Do you think Pharaoh was running around digging looking for water? No. Pharaoh was having people run around digging in water and bringing water to him. In other words, his power, position, money, and status made it so this, that particular punishment of God did not affect him. It affected other people. So he doesn't care at this point. I don't care if the consequences of sin are real as long as they're not affecting me. If they're affecting somebody else, no problem. But now here with the punishment of the plagues, we see, quote, they will be in your house. Moses is careful to say this. You won't be able to buy your way out of this, Pharaoh. The frogs are going to come into your house, your bedroom, your bed, on your servants, and in your ovens and your kneading bowls. They are going to be everywhere. So for the first time, the punishment of God is actually touching Pharaoh's life. And it's no accident here, finally now, for the first time, Pharaoh is actually asking Moses to plead to the Lord for him. The first lesson that we learn from this section, number one, is that like the plague of frogs, sin against God infests every area of your life. Sin against God infests every area of your life. There's this mistaken notion that sin in one area only affects that one area. That you can somehow compartmentalize sin. That you can sin towards your spouse, but it's not going to affect your work. You can sin against God in your work. That's not going to affect your family. Or, or vice versa. We think we can keep sin compartmentalized. But that's not how sin works. Like the plague of frogs, there's no place that sin does not infest. I'd say it's more like your physical health. And I think your physical health is very important. Many segments of American Christianity don't talk about the importance of physical health. We obviously know your spiritual life, your soul matters. I believe in the traditional view of the soul. I'm not a materialist, so I believe in the immateriality of the human soul. I do believe that that matters, and there's a priority there. But your body absolutely matters. Because everything you do, you do in your body. If you have bad physical health, tell me, what area of your life does that not affect? That affects every single area of your life. If you have bad physical health, it affects your work. If you have bad physical health, it affects your marriage. If you have bad physical health, it affects your ability to parent your children. It affects every area of life. It affects your spiritual life. When you pray, 
when you read your Bible, do you not do those in your body? Those are things you do in your body. There's no spiritual thing you do apart from your body. Your physical health will affect every area of your life. And the same is true with your spiritual life. If you're sinning against God, there is no area that is safe. We have to treat sin very, very seriously because it is. I don't know where exactly it comes from, perhaps just wishful thinking, but people really do believe I can sin in my relationship with my spouse, I can sin with my finances, I can sin with, you know, sexually, I can sin with substance abuse, I can sin in these areas, and it'll stay there. I can just kind of keep it there, and it won't spill out into other areas of my life. But unfortunately, what happens is it begins spilling over into every other area. You're probably familiar with the the Titanic catastrophe, and the bulkhead was slashed by that iceberg. And again, the iceberg doesn't look nearly as big on the surface as it actually is underneath the water. That's usually how sin works, by the way. On the surface, you go, ah, sin, it's not that big a deal. But most of what sin is, is under the surface. It's what it does later. And when that iceberg tore the bulkhead, there were special compartments in the Titanic designed to hold water. But what happened? Water in one compartment was spilling over into the next, and into the next, and into the next. And that's when the Titanic completely went parallel out of the water, perpendicular up out of the water, snapped, and went under. That is what sin does. Sin looks like a little thing, but most of what sin is lies underneath. It tears a hole in your life that begins spilling into every other area of your life. We have to take sin very seriously. And so confession and maintaining a softened heart toward the Lord in daily prayer, meditating on God's Word, reading it is good, but meditating. When you read the Word, be present with God. Because God is present with you. We don't want to just be students or academics of the Bible. We want to encounter the living God through His Word. We want to spend time consciously in His presence. There's this uh, book by a sociologist. He's not a Christian, but the book's called Big Gods. And he quotes this old saying, and he says that, People are nicer when they believe they are being watched. And so they recognize that religion, broadly speaking, has actually been a force for good because people behave differently when they believe they're being watched. One of the things that daily prayer, confession, reading Scripture does is it reminds you of the constant presence of God. It reminds you that God's eyes are on you everywhere you go. If you stop reading your word, if you stop praying, if you stop coming to church, it's not like God doesn't see you anymore, but you don't see God. You begin to believe he's not really there. He won't see this little thing. This will never come back to bite me. That's really not a big deal. You literally begin to live a different kind of life when you no longer are conscious of God's presence. So we want to make sure that we do these things and maintain spiritual health because sin spills into every area of our lives. 
Number two, do not be deceived by false repentance. Look at verses 13 through 15. So the Lord did according to the word of Moses, and the frogs died out of the houses, out of the courtyards, and out of the fields. They gathered them together in heaps, and the land stank. But when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart and did not heed them as the Lord had said. Notice here that Pharaoh appears to show repentance, or at least plead for mercy, for the first time. And yet we see it was false pretense. It says, but when Pharaoh saw there was relief, he hardened his heart. The difference between true and false repentance is that false repentance grieves over the consequences of one's actions. True repentance grieves over the cause of one's actions. False repentance is sorrow for hurting oneself. True repentance is sorrow for hurting God and others. So on the surface, it looks like Pharaoh is sorry. Oftentimes when people respond to Jesus in the church, they respond to an evangelistic call, they attend church for the time, it's often the, the repentance of Pharaoh. They feel bad. Things aren't going well. You know, I got marriage problems. Maybe I should try church out. You know, finances aren't so good. The, the industry's changing. Uh, I, I don't know what's going to be happening in the future. Maybe, maybe I should try God. It's something where something came up, an infestation of frogs, bad economy, whatever it is, and so they, they'll go to the Lord, but when that's over, the marriage gets better, your bank account looks good, the economy gets better, then they're gone. They don't pursue the Lord anymore. This can be anybody. This isn't me talking down on other people. This can be any of us. We have to be very careful that we're not fooled by false repentance, including our own. We want to make sure that, look, Lord, am I sorry? Like, I feel the emotion of sorrow right now. I feel regret. Lord, grant me true repentance. I don't want to just be sorry that I got caught. I don't want to just, you know, come to you now and depend on you now because other things aren't working out. Lord, grant me faith and true repentance such that I'm sorry for the sin that, that brought this about. I'm sorry that I trust in this thing more than I trust in you. I'm sorry that I went and did this thing and whether this person knows I did or not, you know. As King David said, and he, he, he wasn't being a jerk here when he, said, when he had Uriah killed and you know committed adultery and he said, against you, God, and you alone have I sinned. He wasn't saying I didn't sin against people. Yes, of course you did. That's obvious. But what he's acknowledging is ultimately it's sin against God. And that's what we want to be able to acknowledge. Ultimately, what I want to grieve is that I sinned against God. Not just that my life got harder. Not just that things got more complicated for me. We so want to love and desire God that we don't want to do anything that hurts him. That's the kind of love God wants to produce in us so one of the obvious signs of true repentance then is lasting change that's what we're looking for in the case of pharaoh we see that the outward repentance lasted only as long as the punishment as soon as the punishment was over or even the end of judgment appeared to be approaching he hardens his heart he is sorry for getting caught he is not sorry for his attitudes or actions 
The psalmist says in Psalm 51, 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. God's not looking for you like, hey, here, God, here's some roses. I feel really bad about what I did. What he wants is the brokenness of heart. Some of us have learned to heal the wounds we've inflicted on others superficially. I remember as a teenager, and I don't think teenage boys should be allowed to date. You know, I, I just don't think they should. But when I was doing it, I mean, it was like I would, you know, hurt my girlfriend's feelings, you know, and, and I would just go buy her roses and chocolates, right? And it would, like, make it okay. And I kind of learned, hey, you know, I wasn't, and I wasn't so much sorry, like, deeply over sin. I'm just, you know, I don't, I don't like, you know, seeing her cry and then getting mad at me, and I don't want to deal with a breakup and all this kind of stuff. So here, I learned to just do these little token kinds of things, and it would sort of heal the situation on the surface. But there was no true repentance in my heart. What God is saying to us, look, you know, you all have little roses and chocolates that you like to do to God. Maybe that's why you're here. Church attendance is the roses and the chocolates. But what God is saying is, look, again, roses and chocolate, yeah, maybe I like those. But the point is, I want your heart. I want your heart to be broken over your sin. I want you to want me more than you want whatever else it was you were wanting in the first place. It's like, that's what I'm looking for. And, and if you can get there, if you can want me more than you want whatever else, then, then the roses and chocolates, are that's great and that's wonderful. But don't let those throw you off. God sees through all of those things and he knows what the condition of our heart really is. The, set, or excuse me, the third plague is the plague of lice in verses 16 through 19. Let's look at that. So the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, stretch out your rod and strike the dust of the land so that it may become lice throughout all the land of Egypt. And they did so. For Aaron stretched out his hand with his rod and struck the dust of the earth, and it became lice on man and beast. All the dust of the land became lice throughout all the land of Egypt. Now the magicians so worked with their enchantments to bring forth lice, but they could not. So there were lice on man and beast, and the magicians said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart grew hard, and he did not heed them, just as the Lord had said. Point number three, spiritual leaders must learn that God alone can make himself real to the human heart. We see that Moses is coming before Pharaoh. We see Moses negotiating. We see Aaron being the orator functioning, as it were, as Moses' prophet. But none of that is changing anything. They're not changing. What actually happens here is the magicians come to a place where their ability comes to an end. They are no longer able to duplicate and do what Moses and Aaron were doing. And that is something that Moses and Aaron could never bring about on their own. The magicians aren't looking at Moses and Aaron and say, oh, well, they're just really smart. They're just really gifted. Oh, they, 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 that was a great, clever argument about God and all this that they shared. No. What happened is God manifested his own power to them. This is actually a theological lesson that the New Testament teaches. And that is that the natural man does not want the things of God. 
somebody who's not already born again by the Spirit of God through belief in the gospel of Jesus Christ is spiritually dead and does not want the things of God. They do not want it. They can't receive it because they're spiritually discerned. We sometimes can confuse that because we're chosen agents, we are chosen instruments of God in the world, and that's true, and it's meaningful, and we're responsible, and yet nevertheless, we cannot reveal God to human hearts. God alone can do that. How many parents, Christian parents, do everything they can to make sure that their kids turn out like Christians? They'll spend all the money in the world to make sure their kids get a Christian education, make sure they're going to church, make sure they pray at bedtime, make sure they do their daily devotions. They'll do everything they can do. But the truth is, at the end of the day, you cannot change a human heart. God alone can change a human heart. The Holy Spirit alone can change a sinner's heart. The same thing is true here. God has to bring these magicians to the end of themselves when they see that I cannot do this. And they have to be able to see this is not just Moses and Aaron. This isn't just me against you and I've got ideas about the way the world is and about religion and about God and you've got your your ideas and we'll just argue about it. At some point, God has to reveal Himself to human hearts or they will never come to know God. So one of the things that we need to do is allow ourselves not to take upon undue pressure to perform that which we cannot. We have to know our place. We can, at worst, we can use humanly devised means to produce a superficial response that's devoid of true divine illumination. In other words, we can simply lower the bar Rather than regeneration, rebirth, we'll just say, hey, will you, will you agree to go to church? Will you, will you do this? Will you, just be, will you be a cultural Christian? This is one of the difficult things when we're talking about Christian history. And people want to say, oh, well, Christians did some horrible things at certain times. You're like, well, were they really? Were, they, were you talking about real disciples born again of the Spirit of God? Or are you talking about cultural Christians? People that wore religious dress, did some religious things, but if they were dead in their hearts by the Bible standards, they're not Christian. If you're torturing people to get a confession out of them, as we saw in the Inquisition, I would question whether you know Jesus. The Jesus I know is one who is willing to be tortured for the sake of others. The idea of people in the name of Jesus torturing others to confess. See, that's man trying to force conversion on someone else. And if you believe that's in your power, then you can justify it. I don't know if any of you have actually read, not just you're aware that the Inquisition happened, but you've read any of the writings of the time. The logic was, we're doing these people a favor. If you have an eternal soul and it's going to be eternally lost, then if you refuse and you're stubborn, you know, you're just stubborn, you're not going to change, then me putting you on the rack and stretching out your limbs until you confess with your mouth that, this, that Islam is false and that Christianity is true, if you believe that's in your hand, then those, that's logical. Hey, I'm doing you a favor. Yes, I recognize it hurts now, but I'm saving your soul. 
There's a huge theological problem with that. You cannot force a confession. You cannot force it through such violent means, nor can you force it even through kind means. Simply showing love to somebody and teaching them the Bible and praying for them by itself is not going to make them a Christian. God alone can reveal himself to human hearts. I don't want to take away at all our responsibility to be God's instruments, to reach people, to evangelize, to plant churches, to do good works, to help the poor, to reconcile those who are at war with one another. We should do those things. But we also are humbled that it's God's grace alone that ever, ever brings a sinner to repentance. The next and final section is the fourth plague, and that's in verses 20 through 32. And the Lord said to Moses, Rise early in the morning and stand before Pharaoh as he comes out to the water. Then say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go that they may serve me. Or else if you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants, on your people and into your houses. The houses of the Egyptians shall be full of swarms of flies, and also the ground on which they stand. And in that day I will set apart the land of Goshen, in which my people dwell, that no swarms of flies shall be there, in order that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the land. I will make a difference between my people and your people. Tomorrow this sign shall be. And the Lord did so. Thick swarms of flies came into the house of Pharaoh, into his servants' houses, and into all the land of Egypt. The land was corrupted because of the swarms of flies. Then Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron and said, Go, sacrifice to your God in the land. And Moses said, It is not right to do so, for we would be sacrificing the abomination of the Egyptians to the Lord our God. If we sacrifice the abomination of the Egyptians before their eyes, then they will not stone us. We will go three days' journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God as he will command us. So Pharaoh said, I will let you go, that you may sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness. Only you shall not go very far. Intercede for me. Then Moses said, Indeed, I am going out from you, and I will entreat the Lord that the swarms of flies may depart tomorrow from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from his people. But let Pharaoh not deal deceitfully anymore in not letting the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. So Moses went out from Pharaoh and entreated the Lord, and the Lord did according to the word of Moses. He removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from his people. Not one remained. But Pharaoh hardened his heart at this time also. Neither would he let the people go. Point number four. Satan wants to compromise your commitment to worship. Notice here that Pharaoh appears to relent, but he really doesn't. Instead, he invites Moses to compromise on what God has told him. The Lord wants nothing short of complete commitment to him, and yet Pharaoh says, worship the Lord, but stay in the land. So God wants Israel out of the land of Egypt. And remember, in the New Testament, Egypt represents the world. It represents worldliness. God wants his people completely out of worldliness, set apart from him. But Pharaoh offers an easier path. It's okay to worship the Lord. Maybe, maybe someone has said this to you, maybe a family member. Eh, it's okay if you go to church on Sunday, but just don't get too serious. 
don't go becoming a religious nut on me. As long as you keep religion carved out for Sunday morning at 10 a.m., that's fine. But when your religion starts spilling into Monday morning, starts spilling into your politics, when it starts spilling into your... Bit, now you know, you're getting a little crazy. Now you're becoming a fundamentalist. Now you're becoming this, that, or the other. Satan is always looking for a way to get you to compromise on your worship. What God's looking for us is complete commitment. Worship is a way of life. What we do on Sunday morning is meant to launch us into a whole life of worship for that week. That's what we believe about gathering on Sunday morning. Not like it's wrong to go on Saturday night or something like that, but, but there is a history and there is a reason. As we know, the Jewish people celebrate Shabbat or Sabbath on Saturday. So since the early followers of Jesus were all Jewish, why did they worship on Sunday? Because they believed it was the day that the Messiah, who fulfilled all of the law, the promises of God, was raised again from the dead on Sunday, and that a new beginning was happening. And they didn't think that that new beginning was meant to be confined to a little slice of a Sunday morning. Come in, be religious, and then go be worldly the rest of the week. But that is often how it is in our country. Many people are willing to worship God on Sunday, but the rest of their life is unaffected. I even had a, a Christian friend of mine kind of brag and boast, like, like it was some good thing, that he leaves his faith at church. It doesn't affect my job at all. I make sure that it, it doesn't, you know, they don't want that. They expressly state, hey, leave your religion and personal view, as if you could really do that if you truly believe these things. But just leave that somewhere else, and you come in here, and you be this picture of a secular, whatever it is, utopian-type person that we are creating and that we want you to be. Well, the Bible just calls that worldliness. That's Egypt. And God does not want us compromising in our worship at all. What we do here is meant to change the rest of your life. What we learned this morning, and this is the hard part. It's easier to go to church. Getting up in the morning, I know that can be hard, especially when there's time change. I know doing it week after week, that can be hard. And, you know, sometimes, oh, I got a little thing with this person. And gosh, now I, Sunday got a little more complicated because, you know, this person got to rub me the wrong way. And now I'm thinking, I, I know that. But what God really wants to do is take what you've heard here he wants to change the next six days of your life. He wants to do that week in and week out. And anything less than that is Satan having his way. Hey, you can worship God, that's fine, but stay in the land. Stay worldly. Compromise on your values. Compromise on how you do your job. Compromise in your relationships. We want to make sure that we, like Israel, are set apart set apart for worship. Lastly, point number five, spiritual leaders know that prayer activates the power of God. This is my favorite point in this whole message. I don't know if you noticed this, but this line absolutely jumped out at me. It grabbed me. thought of, I could just make the whole message just about this. It says, and the Lord did according to the word of Moses. Now, what's incredible is if you go into a Bible program and you type in according to the word of, it's almost always obedience to God. It's 
uh, and, and David did according to the word of the Lord, and Solomon did according to the word of the Lord, and Jeremiah did according to the word of the Lord. It's almost always according to the word of the Lord. Here it's reversed. And the Lord did according to the word of Moses. That's amazing. And I just thought about that and reflected on it. What is going on? What does that mean? I want to I grab onto whatever this is, but I want to be careful that I don't put into it something that I want to believe, but it's not actually there. Let me tell you what I think is going on here. Number one, what we have is that prayer is real relationship. Prayer is real relationship. For people who don't have any Christian background at all, perhaps no religious upbringing, the word prayer sounds kind of like this high and lofty thing and I can't obtain it, I don't know how to do it, I think I'd you know, kind of just fall off to the side and I'd make mistakes and I'd mess it all up. But as I told this one friend who asked me, saying literally, I have no idea what prayer is, I said, do you know what talking is? Like, yeah, I do that all the time. I'm like, well, did you know that's all prayer is? The, the reason we use that word prayer, a special theological word, is simply it denotes who you're talking to. Prayer is real relationship. We're not just praying because it's a duty. It is a duty, but it's not merely a duty. It's not just a mechanical thing. It's not just, you know, you, you put the dollar in the machine and the thing comes out. That's how some people think about prayer. I mean, to be honest, sometimes I wish it was. But that's not how it is. Prayer is real relationship. What we're seeing here is a personal covenant God who is willing to bind himself to someone. That's what's happening. So that a real relationship is there. And though God is in no way giving up his authority, he's not giving up his deity, it's normally going to be, you do according to my word, and yet God is so attaching himself to Moses that it can actually say, and the Lord did according to the word of Moses. Prayer is a personal, relational, covenantal thing. What we also see is that as we're going through this text, we see that the mechanism that activates God's power over and over and over again is prayer. Now, Moses probably had a pretty good idea that if he prayed, the plague would go away. He probably had a good idea. But it seems that Moses is being a little risky in his prayer. It seems to me like he's being a little bold. Where did Moses get the idea, the audacity to throw out, hey, not only will I stop it, why don't you name the time? That's pretty bold. That is bold. That is gutsy. Moses is so confident in prayer and his relationship to God that he can not only say, at my prayer do I believe this is going to stop, but I believe I can let you tell me you tell me, Pharaoh, when you would like it to stop. And it's at that hour that it'll stop. Because if I'm Moses, so I say something like that, and I act all, yeah, hey, just let me know. What, what time do you want it done? Yeah, no problem. God will take care of it. Oh, God, please, don't let me look like an idiot. You know, really, like how does he know that God is going to honor that? Maybe God's going to be like, no, oh, no, Moses, I don't really want to do that. And I don't, you know, I don't mind you coming off looking like a chub. It's not about you anyway. But that's not what we see. It says, and the Lord did according to the word of Moses. Prayer is 
personal, relational, and powerful. I believe prayer is an untapped resource of the church. It's either untapped because we don't try, or we try wrongly. It's not about relationship for us. It's just about getting something done. I just want God to make this go away and that go away. And we sort of bypass the personal relationship that's involved with prayer. In 1 John, there's a very, very important passage about prayer. And it says this. And this is the confidence that we have toward him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. The important qualifier is according to his will. Praying according to God's will is what moves mountains. Sometimes we get stuck in prayer where we're praying and we're praying and we're praying and it doesn't seem to be working. And sometimes it's because we refuse to open up our prayers to God's possibilities. Sometimes in my mind, truth is, I'm only willing for God to do things a certain way. Like, Lord, you have to provide, and you have to provide in this way at this time. Lord, you have to heal me, and you have to heal me in this way and this time. And we keep praying that and praying that and praying that, and it doesn't seem to be working. And I think one of the things God wants us to consider is that perhaps we're asking, but we're asking amiss. We're not tapping into his will. We need to open ourselves up and be like, Lord, you do what you want to do. Sometimes God will impress the details on our hearts and we can pray specifically. Other times God is just wanting us to open up our hands in prayer because we think we're doing some high, noble, lofty, religious thing by praying at all. But the truth is there's so much selfishness attached to the prayer. The prayer has to be my will. But as we know, what does the Lord's Prayer say? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Prayer is not a means of you getting your will done in heaven, but God's means of getting his will done on earth. If we can open up our hands to whatever the will of God is, that the will of God for your life, as scary as it might be at times, as unpredictable as it might be at times, whatever the will of God is, it's what's best for you. Can you believe that? Can you trust God with that? Because if you can trust God with that, your prayer life is going to change. You're going to start seeing prayer answered that was previously unanswered, and you're going to experience the power of the Spirit. But we've got to open ourselves up to what the will of God is for our lives and trust that because God is good, His will is therefore also good. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for speaking with us this morning. We thank you for your presence. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your forgiveness. We thank you for your power. Lord, I just pray as we come into this time of response where whatever you have spoken by your Holy Spirit to our hearts where we are at this morning, Lord, we just pray that you would draw us into your presence. We pray that our hearts would be pliable. We pray that you would speak to us. If there's any arguments right now in our minds, maybe some of us are doubting. Some of us maybe are already coming up with excuses as to why this doesn't apply to me or I don't need to do this. 
Lord, I just pray you would help us to confess those things, to be honest with you, to confess our stubbornness, and that we would yield ourselves fully and completely to your will, that we would do with our lives what it was we were created for. So I just pray for a blessing over this time now. In Jesus' name, amen.